Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. On today's episode, we're going to learn about a very highly requested movie, Mutiny on the Bounty. In fact, this is one of the most requested movies, so I'm super excited to have the chance to chat with Brandon Hubner about the film. Brandon is the host of the Maritime History Podcast, which, as the name implies, covers a ton of in-depth detail about pretty much anything relating to maritime history. Before we chat with Brandon, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Captain Bly was not really the captain of the bounty. Number two, not all of the mutineers left Tahiti for Pitcairn. Number three, Lieutenant Christian was killed after trying to save the bounty from burning. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Brandon to chat about the historical accuracy of Mutiny on the Bounty. The movie opens by giving us a time and place. We're at uh, Portsmouth Harbor in England on December 23rd, 1787. This is when the HMS Bounty leaves England. Her mission, according to the movie, is to travel to Tahiti to gather what the gardener on board, Mr. Brown, calls breadfruit. And according to Mr. Brown, the breadfruit plant has the potential to be a great source of food for British colonies like those in the West Indies. That's how the movie kind of sets up the context for the purpose of the bounty's mission. Can you give us an overview of how accurate that was to history? Yeah, definitely. My basic answer is that that is the broad purpose of the mission. It, it's pretty accurate in, in the big picture. So I was pretty impressed with how they set it up there. I think in one of the opening scenes, the gardener Brown that you mentioned he alludes to Kew Gardens, which he says is the garden in London. And that was the Royal Gardens in London there. It had been around for a while. The connection with Kew Gardens to the actual bounty mission was that Sir Joseph Banks was the president of the Royal Society, the Scientific Society of Gentlemen in London in that time. And he was one of the guys who really helped get the Kew Gardens off the ground and grow a lot in that era. He's the man who bankrolled the Bounty Expedition, basically. He had a lot of finances and he put it together. And his whole purpose for the expedition was to get breadfruit from Tahiti, like they said. So that was definitely the main purpose. Joseph Banks actually had gone on previous expeditions to the Pacific, so he was personally familiar with that area. He went there with Captain Cook, who's a pretty well-known, one of the early explorers of the Pacific there. So yeah, bringing breadfruit from Tahiti over to the West Indies was their main goal. They had some other sub-goals, I guess, which were to f more fully explore that area of the world because it hadn't been 
fully explored to that point. There were broad stretches of it that weren't on maps at all. So that was a secondary purpose of the expedition too. Would that be a rather consistent secondary purpose of, I guess I'm just assuming that if a ship, whether it's Bounty or you know another ship, goes off into an area that's not necessarily explored very well, that automatically becomes a secondary mission to whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty fair. That's how a lot of them viewed their purpose as explorers at that time and place in history, especially the, you know, the captains coming from Europe in that time were the ones leading the forefront of exploration. So yeah, having the dual purpose there, I, I think was pretty common. Okay. Well, now that we know a little bit about the when and where and what their purpose was, I'm curious about the who. Uh, especially since (laughs) movies a lot of times like to change names or make up completely fictional characters. So I always like to ask about some of the characters that we see. And in this movie, there's a few key characters that we meet early on. There's Lieutenant Fletcher Christian. He's played by Marlon Brando. When I went back to watch this, man, he was really young in this movie. Yeah, I I noticed that too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then uh, Captain William Bly, he's played by Trevor Howard. And one of the more prominent of the crewmen, a man by the name of John Mills, he's played by Richard Harris. And again, I did not recognize him at first. It took a little bit because he was so young. But were those real people on the bounty? Yeah, all three of them were. And I agree with you. Like I was kind of caught off guard by how young all the actors were. It's been a long time since I saw this movie. (laughs) Um, So pretty interesting. But yeah, all three of those guys were real men who went on the bounty expedition. Of course, Fletcher Christian and the Captain Bly are the two main ones. Christian, you know, was fairly well depicted. I think he was kind of coming from a family that had more means, I suppose you could say. I don't know if he was quite as much of, you know, a dandy as the movie depicted necessarily, but it's a little hard to tell just from looking at records from the time. So he could have had that type of personality. Bly, too, he he was basically the captain of the voyage. I guess technically in that time frame, he hadn't achieved the rank of captain officially for the Navy yet. But Bly was technically not a captain, but that's the role that he played on this expedition. He was the leader and everybody knew he was. Bly was the one who really gives us most of the records we have from the actual expedition, because as the captain, he's the one who was writing the logbook every day. You know, he kept his own journal of events as they unfolded. So his records are a pretty good contemporary running log of what would have happened on the expedition with the giant caveat, of course, that he could leave stuff out if he wanted to. So that that becomes a focal point of the historical debate, I guess. The third guy, John Mills, he was also part of the crew. He was a gunner's mate, I think. So he wasn't at the top of the leadership structure per se. And I found it a little strange that they included him as more of a focus of the film's narrative, because as far as we can tell from history, he didn't really play that big of a role. And we don't have any, you know, firsthand written accounts from him where we do have written journals or after the fact accounts from other people who were part of the expedition. So his role in the film was a little surprising to me, but he was a real person. 
I wonder if maybe I've seen this, you know, a lot with filmmakers will in order to make it easier to understand it's the crew is this one essentially all coming from this one guy. Because as I recall, Mills, at least in the movie, was the spokesperson for the crew. And so the crew's position very often was essentially whatever it was he was saying. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to look at it. And I kind of had the same thought watching back through the film. He's used as like a figurehead almost. There were a fair number of other crew members that I caught their names over the course of the film. And I think they were pretty accurate as far as naming different people who were part of the crew. Okay. They just picked, uh, okay, Richard Harris is playing this guy, so he's going to be the main guy. <laughs> yeah, that's probably how it went. <laughs> now, now we, we don't really see any sort of dates or anything like that in the movie after they leave England, but almost immediately we start to get a sense for Captain Bly's leadership. And this happens when Mills is accused of stealing two 25-pound wheels of cheese by another crew member. And initially, he denies this, but then below decks with the crew, Mills admits that he took the cheese, but he insists that he took the cheese because Captain Bly wanted him to take the cheese to his house. It was a direct order. And then he calls Captain Bly a thief. And just about that time, of course, as it would happen, Bly happens to walk by and he hears this. And then Bly orders Mills to receive two dozen lashes. I mean, anytime watching a torture like this is it's difficult, but it's also insane to think about how this is, uh, at least according to the movie, it's happening over some cheese that, according to one side, was the order from Captain Bly. But then there's even some dialogue in there as if, you know, that wasn't enough of an indication of his style of leadership. But there's, uh, I think it was Lieutenant Christian mentions the, the, this infraction is minor, you know, stealing some cheese, and the punishment is way too severe. But then Captain Bly says something to the effect of, that may be true, but cruelty with purpose is not cruelty. It's efficiency. And so we get the idea from the movie that Captain Bly wants to lead his crew through fear. How well did the movie do showing Captain Bly's mentality for how he wanted to lead his crew? That is a good question. That's a bit of a tough one, too, because, again, like I mentioned a minute ago, his journal, his records are a large basis of what we know about what happened on the expedition. We we have some after-the-fact accounts by people who were implicated in everything as it plays out. You know, you, you can almost look at it like by the time we get to the part where we're looking at everybody's story of what happened, we're in a court trial almost. So you take people's testimony with a grain of salt at that point a little bit, I guess. So we do know that Bly was pretty strict as a captain. The whole cheese block incident, I guess, is Christian tried to pass it off as it was a minor thing, but Bly was coming and most of the crew, almost the entire crew, were coming from this tradition of they were part of the Royal Navy. They'd all served on ships before and they'd been under various captains during the tenure of their careers. Respecting the structure of authority in, in the Navy especially was a huge deal. So the cheese incident, I guess, Captain Bly, if it played out that way, he was looking at it as not so much that he wanted to rule them through fear, but more that he just needed to assert his authority, I guess, and make sure that he was viewed as the captain and there was no questioning his integrity. 
that's part of it, I guess. As far as Bly's personality, there are quite a few accounts from this expedition, from later expeditions that he was part of, too. He had quite a few run-ins with various people over the course of his life and career in the Navy and as an authority figure. Once you get a long enough string of people having run-ins with the same guy over and over, you start to wonder if... Common denominator. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So there is some of that going on beneath the surface, I guess. Bly was, he was pretty strict, even aside from his personality. He had served on previous voyages with Captain Cook. Captain Cook was also very strict. He believed in keeping his crew set to a rigid schedule, keep them disciplined, keep them in shape, especially because when you're going on these long voyages to the Pacific where you don't exactly know where you're going to wind up or when, he really believed in keeping everybody exercised and fit eating a regular diet, and a lot of the sailors could get on board with that. But of course, you always have some sailors on the crew who are just there for the rum or whatever. They they don't want (laughs) to listen to the authority figure. That came into it. I think there's a scene in the movie where he has the crew dancing up on the deck at one point. There's the guy playing the fiddle. And I thought that was a pretty good scene to include because we know from the journals that Captain Bly... He was so insistent that they had to get four hours of dancing in every night. Like he had a set schedule from 4 to 8 p.m. He'd have the fiddle player play and they all had to dance on deck as a way to get exercise because there's nowhere else to go when you're stuck on a tiny ship. So that was reported to have gotten old rather quickly with the crew. They they made fun of it, you know. <laughs> But Bly couldn't cave. He just had to keep them to it if he wanted to maintain his authority. So it was things like that. He he tried to keep them all in line and in order. And it does seem like the crew got tired of it kind of quickly. Earlier, you mentioned that he wasn't really a captain, but he was trying to prove himself. Do you think some of it had to do with that, where he's trying to prove himself as a captain so that when he returns home from this voyage, people in the Navy will see how good a job he did and actually give him the official title? I do. I think that's a very good point. And, you know, the historians that have done work on this and done the research into everybody's accounts and journals and whatnot, that's something they point to quite a bit as maybe being part of the underlying psychological basis for why Bly acted the way he did. There were letters going back and forth between him and the Admiralty in London before the voyage left that kind of show he was pretty concerned that they'd make him a captain before they set sail. It was a big deal to him. So you can kind of assume from that that it was always there in the back of his mind. He maybe was frustrated because the Admiralty didn't come through and make him a captain before the voyage set sail, even though they were supposed to. He probably did then feel like he had to go out of his way to prove a point. And maybe that did play a role. Yeah. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. 
access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As you're mentioning that and then tying that back into most of what we know about this still comes from him. And so thinking of the things that he may not have included that he might have thought might have been a little bit too much or something, I don't know, it, putting in the logs. Again, like you said, he can control what goes in those logs. And so just think about how how many things we don't know about that might have happened that he just decided to omit from history. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion. I I tend to think there aren't a ton of things that he left out. I, he was conscientious as a captain, it seems, to try to keep as accurate of a record as possible. But it, it still does raise questions. There, there was a time where after they leave England, the movie said it was sometime in December, if I remember correctly. December 23rd, 1787. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they initially were trying to leave England a couple, like two months before that in October. The Admiralty slowed them down a bit just because this expedition wasn't a huge priority, which is reflected in the fact that they didn't try that hard to make Bly an actual post-captain. So there were kind of a chain of events that set them behind schedule a little bit. They got stuck by weather in the English Channel. So by the time they finally make it out into the Atlantic in December, you know, he's already annoyed, like, we're behind schedule. Then he wants to show he's still the captain, keep his authority going, get everybody in a strict regimen. So, you know, there's a way you can look at it, like maybe things got off on a bad foot from the very beginning. But then it just becomes a debate, like how much of that was Bly's fault? He he should have been able to handle that anyways, because he's the captain. He's got to be prepared for anything. Yeah, you, you mentioned the time frame there, and that leads right into my next question, because something that we get from the movie is how... Captain Bly is so focused on getting to their destination as soon as they can. And so he decides instead of taking the long way around, and I think they show a little map to kind of uh, visualize this, but think of, you know, the, the Cape of Good Hope in Africa, according to the movie, perceived as the, the safer route. But then Captain Bly decides to take the more dangerous route down around uh, South America, which is Cape Horn. But that's shorter distance-wise, but it's more dangerous because of weather. Now, if they're able to do it, 
the movie implies that they can save five months, shave five months off of their voyage. But this decision in the movie proves disastrous. There's horrible weather. Eventually forces them to turn around and in the process instead of saving five months they lose five months time which of course makes captain bly not very happy at all but was the movie correct in showing that captain bly initially commanded the bounty to go around cape horn instead of the cape of good hope yeah that's that's another point where i think in general that is accurate that was their initial plan was to go around South America, around Cape Horn, just like you said, because it saves them so much time and so much distance traveled. The rub is that you're going further south than you would if you had to go around the Cape of Good Hope around the tip of South Africa. So the the bad weather comes into play as you're getting close into the Antarctic regions there. They knew it was going to be a gamble, I suppose, but enough ships had gone that route by this point in history. They knew with pretty fair certainty that if they got there early enough in the sailing season, they'd have a high likelihood of being able to make it around the Cape of Good Hope. That was the initial orders from the Admiralty to definitely try to go that way if you can, because it saves us time and money. So it, it seems like Captain Bly, but even his superiors all were of the same mindset that that was the first way to try to go. As I mentioned a little bit, they were behind from the beginning through not really Captain Bly's fault. So by the time they finally got out of the English Channel and into the Atlantic, he probably had a sneaking suspicion that they weren't going to make it there in time. I suppose maybe that's another thing that you know, might have gotten under his skin, made him have a worse attitude than he was inclined to have to begin with. So yeah, that was their first attempt was to go that way, but they did wind up getting stopped by weather, like you said. Okay, yeah, that's a good little tidbit about them being delayed from the onset, because that's not something they really show in the movie. And so it just, the impression I get from the movie is he is just so focused on getting there he wants to shave five months off regardless it doesn't really show that oh they're already starting off a little bit behind and so wanting to save make up some of that time is a little more of a understandable i can understand that a little bit more trying to make up a little bit of that time rather than when i was watching the movie again this last time it just seems like oh man he just he just wants to it's all about making a good impression and getting there really fast and 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 that not necessarily we just want to get there on time <laughs> and we've already lost some time yeah that's a good point i i think he he was very driven to make the good impression so maybe there's elements of both but that kind of muddies the waters a little bit if you try to show that it wasn't just his fault i can see why the movie set it all up the way that it did yeah yeah. Well, one thing in, they do show in the movie was that after this happens, Captain Bly actually blames the crew for costing them five months as if it was the crew's decision to go around Cape Horn first, even though just a little bit earlier in the movie, they show that it was Captain Bly's decision and they didn't want to do it. But did he really blame the crew for that decision? Oh, that's a good question. I kind of wondered the same thing when the movie portrays it that way. I tend to think that that's a bit more of a stretch than maybe some of these other points. I've never read anything to that effect. But again, I I wouldn't be entirely surprised if there is a kernel of truth there. 
not so much that he was truly angry at the crew, but I could see he was kind of renowned to have a temper in trying circumstances that he didn't try to restrain at all. And he would just, you know, let his worst thoughts fly at whoever tended to be closest at the moment. So I could see they got to the Cape, um, to Cape Horn and they were held up by weather for a few weeks. He kept trying to push them to make the turn around to try to get over onto the Pacific side. There were plenty of ships who could fight against the prevailing winds and they could make it around. But it's also a renowned area of the world where there's tons of shipwrecks because it's so dangerous. He was very driven to try to get them to make it around because they spent several weeks trying to fight against the winds. But he wound up just having to tell the crew, we tried, we'll turn around. It seems like some of that decision was probably because all of the crew was sick of it at that point. And I could see in the heat of the moment and in him getting so frustrated, he probably did lash out at crew members. I just haven't seen anything concrete to show like what he said necessarily or anything like that. You make a good point, though, that if he was already frustrated because they were behind and then this happens, it's it's just not going to help somebody who sounds like has a short fuse anyway to begin with. And so he's going to lash out for the even some of the smallest things after that. I guess it sounds kind of like an excuse when I put it that way. I, I don't mean to portray it as an excuse for him. No, but it rationalized it, 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 it. I'm like, I'm just trying to put myself in that mindset of why would he do the things that he's doing and not not to excuse them by any means. Right, right. But just to try to try to understand it, I guess, is is no better way to put that than that. That's fair. That's fair. I wonder while they were stuck trying to go around Cape Horn in the bad weather, did they still have to do their nightly dancing? They would have really struggled, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's freezing cold down there. <laughs> Maybe he gave them a break. I don't know. Well, going back to the movie, once the bounty reaches their destination in Tahiti, they're welcomed by the natives. There's singing, dancing, feasting. It's what I pretty much would assume a Hollywood 60s movie would show on a tropical island, right? And of course, the crew loves this. How were they actually received when they arrived in Tahiti? From all the accounts we have, it, it seems like they were received with open arms by the Tahitians. Like you said, I'm sure the movie romanticizes it a little bit in that 60s style that it does. Um, it's still fun to watch, though, for sure. But we know from the records, like Captain Cook had been to Tahiti before. There have been some other expeditions that have made land there. So the people of Tahiti were fairly well familiar with people coming from Europe and from the outside world by this point. And they were glad to have people visit. They especially loved all the wealth and the goods that these ships brought with them from the European world. So I think that was part of it. But Culturally, Tahiti was also a very welcoming society, kind of like the movie portrays too. So I think it's been about 10 months since the ship left England by the time they make it to Tahiti here. We said that Cook had been to Tahiti. So there's that one scene where Captain Bly sees, I'm assuming is the king of this tribe on Tahiti. And I thought that was a really cool scene. I'm not sure how accurate it is. I don't know a ton about the cultural aspects of Tahiti and all that stuff. But we do know from Bly's 
records that he recognized the king. He had known him since Bly was on the final expedition that Cook made to the Pacific. So Captain Bly knew personally some of these people who still lived on Tahiti. I think some of the other crew members were also on that expedition. Some of the bounty crew members were. So there were probably a handful of those on the bounty who were meeting old friends almost in a sense, which is is pretty interesting. The island was familiar to them for that whole point then. I think they set up their camp on the same site that Captain Cook's camp had been on. So it's a little weird to think about, but they almost were coming back to a familiar environment a little bit. And then, of course, you had a decent portion of the bounty crew who had never been there. And it was just like they were awestruck with the Pacific Island and all the people there. So it's interesting to read the accounts of how taken the the crewmen were with the island and the life there. The women were very open as the movie portrays, like a lot of the sailors on the bounty voyage took up with their island wives, I guess you could call them as kind of how the movie portrays it. And that's pretty well established in all the records that we have, too. All the men had their wives on the island while they were there. I'm pretty sure Captain Bly did keep himself apart from all of that, which the movie also alludes to. But yeah, from the logs, we tell that a a lot of the crew members had to be treated for transmitted diseases. So it's pretty well established that that's how it all operated while they were on the island. They were there for a period of months and they didn't have too much to do. He he wanted to keep them on land so they could get more exercise and all that kind of stuff. So they had some duties during the day, but they had a ton of free time compared to what they would have on the ship. You mentioned how long they were on there for. And the movie implies that when they get to Tahiti, the breadfruit plants that they're going for were in their dormant season. So that means basically they can't transport them safely without these plants dying before they reach their destination. So this is the reason why the bounty crew has to stay on Tahiti for months, because they have to stay there until the dormant season is over. And that's an extra five months. And you did mention that they stayed there for a few months. Was that part of the plan or was it like in the movie, it's unplanned. It was not necessarily part of the plan to stay there for that long. Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say that it wasn't part of their original plan. If everything would have gone according to the plan that they had on paper before they left England, they'd have made it around Cape Horn on time. They'd have made it to Tahiti several months before they did. Their stay would have been a lot shorter, and then they've, they would have gotten the plants and gotten out of there. The simple way is that it didn't go according to plan, but the plan broke down before they even got to Tahiti, like we said. So part of the reason they had to stay there longer was that the breadfruit had gone into that dormant period. But it it seems pretty likely that Captain Bly and everybody, especially the gardeners that they had brought on board who did know about breadfruit, by the time they were in the vicinity of Tahiti, they probably had a good idea that they were going to have to wait it out just because they were knowledgeable about the timeline and all that stuff. The only other reason I can think of for why they had to wait in that region of the world, they are pretty dependent on the monsoon winds that are seasonal in nature. So that was the other part of the delay. By the time they got to Tahiti, it was in the time of the year, which when did we say they got there? 10 months after they left. 
They got there in the fall, so they had to wait until springtime came back around, basically, which I guess would be about five months. The winds in the fall time are blowing from the west to the east towards Tahiti coming out of like Southeast Asia. In the springtime, they shift. They're blowing the opposite direction. And that's the direction that the bounty wanted to leave once they left Tahiti. They were going to bring the breadfruits on board and then go through Southeast Asia, north of Australia, and then cut across the Indian Ocean, go back around the Cape of Good Hope, but go in the opposite direction and then cut up to the Caribbean. So they needed the winds to help them do that. Otherwise, they really wouldn't have been able to make that journey in that direction in the fall time. So I guess that's two parts. The breadfruit, they had to wait out, but they also had to wait for the winds to shift. Backing up from that, I'm curious because we were talking about the initial delay in the English Channel and then the delay around South America and all of these causing that. And then, of course, this one here, once they actually reach their destination in Tahiti, yeah, things aren't going according to plan. But I would have to assume that things don't go according to plan a lot of the time. And that so that. I would assume that things not going according to plan would have to be part of the plan, I guess, <laughs> and kind of the norm for a lot of these expeditions. So I would assume that whoever is tracking this back in England or whoever is in charge of planning these missions and, and these uh, explorations are probably pretty familiar with that and pretty lenient with that. And so it wouldn't necessarily be a reasonable reason why it would make Captain Bly that much more anxious and angry and upset. I don't know if that's the way to phrase that, but does that make sense? No, it, it does. And I, it's a very reasonable question. It, it does, you know, get us more into that area where we're kind of trying to psychoanalyze Bly and why, why he was making decisions he was and had kind of the attitude he did towards things. And I, I think you raise a good point because the Admiralty, they had their original game plan. But like you said, they had a wealthy guy bankrolling the whole thing. They had a bunch of people in the Royal Society who had interests in this. And technically, it, it was an expedition that was part of the Navy. It wasn't a civilian expedition. So... Bly had his orders from the Navy and all of the men on his crew were part of the Navy who, you know, were oath bound to follow him and to do everything the Navy way, which is, you know, according to orders and according to the plan. Once it became clear that they weren't going to make it a, around Cape Horn, I, maybe they knew early enough, but they had been able to send word back to England and the Admiralty understood they were going to have to reroute around Cape Horn and they signed off on that. So everybody in the whole chain of reporting knew that they had to adapt. They knew that the bounty put in, you know, in South Africa for a period of weeks to restock and everything. And they'd put in at various ports before they got to Tahiti and been sending letters back to England the whole time. So, yeah, Bly should have known that the Admiralty was informed of all these adaptations of the plan. And... You would think that that would inform his whole perspective on everything. As best as I can tell, a lot of the character studies just seem to conclude that he was a he was an uber perfectionist. He wanted everything to be perfect according to the original plan. 
and he doesn't seem like he adapted to change well. He he wasn't quick on his feet. And it, it seems like over this period of months, it really kept digging further and further under his skin and, you know, pushing his already sour personality even further that way. Yeah, well, it sounds like being a, a perfectionist and also a captain of a ship in the 1700s where things don't go according to plan. <laughs> it's probably not a good combination. Yeah. The other thing I have heard that I suppose makes sense is I've alluded to Captain Cook a few times and how Bly was on Captain Cook's final expedition. Some people go so far as to say Captain Cook was this famous explorer. He was the first guy to explore the Pacific and discover all this stuff. He was a celebrity in England, basically. And Captain Bly seems to have had a desire to be viewed the same way. And Cook's voyages had all gone, you know, really smoothly. Cook was a good disciplinarian. He kept everything in line. It seems like maybe Bly was shooting for that mark. And every time that something happened where he he felt like he wasn't reaching up to that mark, it just contributed to his bad attitude, I guess. I don't know. That makes sense. That's another aspect that I didn't think about. Cook being, I'm assuming, a kind of a mentor type role in his eyes, at least, and wanting to live up to that as well. Yeah. Well, if we go back to the movie after they're in Tahiti for a few months, but then after they leave Tahiti, Captain Bly just continues torturing his men. There's one of them that is just super brutal and it's called keel hauling. It's one of the crew, uh, Mr. Young, he claims it's illegal, but they do it anyway. And the way that the movie depicts this is they tie a man to ropes drop him into the water, and then the crew takes the other end of the ropes and drag him along the hull of the ship. So he's actually at the bottom of the ship being dragged along the hull. And in this case, the man is eaten by sharks before the punishment is even done. So Captain Bly doesn't even really seem to care. He's like, okay, just drop the ropes in the water then, I guess. Was keel hauling a real punishment? And did it actually take place on the bounty? Uh, This whole scene was, I probably had my... (laughs) jaw dropped a little bit when I was watching it. It's definitely a real punishment. Um, And the way that they carried out the punishment was accurately portrayed in the movie. That's how it worked. The only issue is that we have no record of the bounty having carried out a punishment like this. And the crewman who said that it was illegal, he was right. It, It was highly illegal. The Royal Navy would never have put up with captains punishing crew members like this. I don't think there are too many records of captains even attempting to do a punishment like this, at least captains in the Navy. Where you see this punishment coming into the historical record more so is back way far in ancient times. I I think there were some Roman ships where they punished, I'm assuming maybe it would have been more slaves who were chained to the rowing oars back on those types of ships. They were punished like this. But the common image of this punishment is that it's what pirates did to punish people because it's such a cruel form of punishment, right? Like you're being dragged under the ship and a ship that's been in the ocean for so long has barnacles and stuff all growing on it. You're basically getting a slow stabbing death while you're like submerged in salt water. I Yeah, it it was a super cruel punishment. I don't think that they used it on the bounty, but in the version of the story that the film presents, it does make Captain Bly look like a really bad guy. 
Well, yeah, I mean, anybody that would do that would be. Yep. Yep. I, I think it's a bit of a stretch, though. Okay. Well, I'm I'm happy to hear that at least. I mean, not that any of the punishments that he put on people were good, but I'm happy to hear that keel hauling at least was not part of the picture. Yeah. Yeah. I, there were plenty of other punishments. I think that one is just too extreme. But I guess we're to the point in the story now where they showed that lashing related to the cheese wheel incident early on. And there were plenty of lashings that took place for various things. There were some crew members who just mouthed off to the captain and that's deserving of punishment. Would lashing be the default punishment almost of whatever the infraction is? If there's not something specific, then lashing is kind of just the the go to. Yeah, as far as I know, that that was the pretty standard one. And then just the degree of the punishment to match the degree of the crime would just depend on how many lashings you actually got. I think while they were on Tahiti, there were some incidents of sailors trying to escape and go to a different island. I think they showed that in the movie. I don't remember where at in the timeline. Some of those sailors did get locked up for a while on top of getting lashings and getting punished like that. Otherwise, I think maybe some of the other punishments was just reducing rations for people who broke the rules in some way, whether that would be to take away their grog rations, which is like their alcohol allotment for the day. That was a pretty common punishment, too. Well, in the movie, Captain Bly, kind of leading up to the actual mutiny itself, he orders restrictions on the men's water because they don't have enough water for the plants. The movie says that they actually took twice as many as were needed because Captain Bly wanted to impress the people in Jamaica when they get there. But that means that they need twice as much water for these plants. And then Captain Bly essentially takes that from the men's water supply. The idea that Captain Bly had was he would store a ladle at the top of the mast and then whoever wanted a drink would have to go up there and get it and then they would get one ladle of water. And we see actually one of the men falling to his death uh, onto the deck trying to get that ladle up there. Then a little bit later, we see Lieutenant Christian. He tries to give the man who drank some, he actually drank some seawater. And so he was going through, uh, I'm not 100% sure what it's called when you drink too much seawater other than not a good idea. But uh, Lieutenant Christian was trying to give him some fresh water in order to save his life. But of course, that pulls from the water supply. Captain Bly is not happy with that. So he kicks the water from his hand, which doesn't save the water either. It just splashes it all over the deck. And then that's when Lieutenant Christian has had enough. So he and his sailors take over the ship. And that is the actual mutiny itself. That was the final straw, as it were. How well did the movie do showing these events leading up to and during the mutiny itself? That's another good question. And I didn't think about how Captain Bly was just wasting all the water he was so worried about by doing it. That, that's a good irony to point out there. <laughs> but yeah, it, I feel like kind of a broken record a little bit. I like how the movie builds the tension and they have their good guy and the bad guy, the hero and the villain, I guess. But when it comes to what we actually know about how everything played out, they get the big picture fairly accurate, but a lot of the details they kind of twist or they change entirely to serve the narrative, I'm sure. And it, it works really good in the movie. 
it's probably less exciting how it actually played out in reality. But, you know, that is what it is. That's usually how it goes. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. Um, so there were a couple of incidents after they left Tahiti, I think I had alluded to. And there's no need to get into the particulars. It all kind of came to a head when Captain Bly, he directly accused Lieutenant Christian of stealing something was, you know, what what appears set things over the edge. It doesn't seem to have been tied to the water supply, maybe indirectly. They did bring more plants on board than maybe was necessary. I don't know if that's because he wanted to impress where they were getting or just because he knew they were going to lose some along the way and they needed to make sure they had enough. I, I don't recall too much about that. I'm sure it would have taken a lot of water to keep them all alive. So I bet he did decrease their water ration a little bit, but I don't think it was so extreme to be to the point that the film depicts. They had brought on a lot of other supplies when they left Tahiti, too. So they, they weren't necessarily hurting for water for supplies like that at this point yet. So the incident that set things off was Captain Bly had a stack of coconuts out on the deck that he had told everybody, don't touch these. These are mine. And his plan was at some point, a couple days down the road, he was just going to hand them out to the crew as kind of a treat. I guess he thought, you know, that would be nice or something, like the boss bringing in donuts or whatever. The story goes that Fletcher Christian knew this, but overnight, one night, one of the coconuts disappeared and everybody knew that it was Christian who had taken it. It led to a confrontation where Captain Bly accused him of stealing it and things blew up from there. Some of the eyewitness accounts after the fact tend to make it look like Christian might have done this on purpose because he wanted to push things into a confrontation and that over a course of days and weeks, he'd been like slowly getting more and more irked with Captain Bly. He'd been getting really moody and depressed, it seems like, from the way he was acting, according to other crew members anyways. And the speculation is that he was just tired of Captain Bly berating him for one. It seems like when they were on Tahiti, Bly singled him out to, you know, lecture for not working hard enough. And he just really kept on Christian's case the whole time. And you can imagine how over a course of months that would start to grate on you. You'd probably get sick of the guy. So it seems like that's maybe what happened. After this whole coconut incident, that must have pushed Christian over the edge, whether he wanted it to or not, who knows. But the mutiny actually happened at nighttime. Uh, Captain Bly was asleep in his cabin. He had a pretty small cabin because the typical captain cabin that was, you know, the whole rear part of the ship like you see in movies, they had turned that into like the greenhouse, basically. So Captain Bly was relegated to this little small section. And... Supposedly, according to the, the sailors who were on the ship, he trusted everybody so much he just slept with the door open. He wasn't worried about anything, it doesn't seem like. So, you know, that tends to indicate that he did not see the mutiny coming at all. Whether that's because he thought his authority was safe or he was just so oblivious to his own irritating personality, it's hard to tell. It probably is the latter because he seemed to think that 
he was a great guy and he could never understand why people were so annoyed at him. But that is what it is. So Fletcher Christian got sick of it. He planned to do the mutiny on his own, but then some other crew members got wind of it somehow over the course of a night, and they too must have been tired of the situation. He gets a gun, and then a couple other crew members were able to grab some guns, and they just stormed into Bly's cabin, grabbed him while he was asleep, and marched him up on the deck, holding a cutlass to his throat and saying that they were going to take over the ship, and nobody should you know, fight back or the captain's going to die type of situation. It seems like a lot of it was they were personally annoyed at Captain Bly. Like I said, it seems after the fact, maybe some of them joined in the mutiny because they missed Tahiti too, which I I think the movie gets into that aspect of it a little more so. Uh, But that does seem to have been an underlying factor for some of them, maybe not for all of them. Well, the movie does imply that not all of the crew were involved in the mutiny, and you mentioned that as well. It seems like, from what you were saying, maybe even less of less people were involved in the mutiny than the movie shows. I, I don't. I should have counted. I didn't actually count how many people it shows involved in the mutiny in the movie, but we do see a split with some people following Lieutenant Christian and some people following Captain Bly. But then Captain Bly and his followers are set free in the open ocean and the bounty just sails on. Is that what happened after the mutiny? Yeah, that's a pretty fair summary of how it played out. I'm trying to remember. I think there were 46 people on board the bounty total. The mutiny plays out, like you said, and there were a smaller handful who were immediately on board. They wanted to take over the ship and kick off the captain. There were a portion of the remainder who weren't sure what to do. Either they couldn't believe what was happening or they just weren't sure who was going to come out on top. So they were waiting to, you know, see which side they (laughs) be on the right side. Exactly. Which, you know, is kind of tacitly joining the mutiny, I guess. And then there was another minority who weren't going to be part of it no matter what. And they would have defended their captain, except they had no weapons at hand. And, you know, they'd have immediately been killed if they tried to fight back. So the mutineers, they took the ship's launch, which was just this tiny boat. It was like 20 some odd feet long, maybe six or seven feet wide, a very small boat. They took Captain Bly and they took 18 other crew members who didn't want to take part in the mutiny. And they forced 19 guys into this tiny boat, put them over the side and just, like you said, dropped them off in the open ocean. There were a few crew members who, even when the boat was that full, they wanted to get off the bounty because they didn't want to be part of the mutiny. But there was no room left. Like they literally have been consigning themselves and everybody else to die because the boat would sink. It just was too heavy at that point. There were 25 men who stayed on board the bounty afterwards and 19 who left. Most of the 25 were fine with being there. There were a small handful who were forced to stay. I think they made the carpenter stay on board, even though he wanted to leave because they needed his skills to keep the bounty afloat. So self-interested for sure. Then when they put that tiny boat's launch over the side, 
those 19 guys had about five days worth of food and water and then they were just left out in the open ocean. So even though they didn't kill Bly immediately, it seems like they were hoping that's what would happen and they did their best to speed it along. They didn't want to be responsible for actually doing it, but pretty much doing it. Yeah. Well, in the movie, we see Captain Bly is on the boat with his followers, as I'll call them. He orders his men to go some 3,600 miles away to Bangor. And from there, then his plan is to head to England. We never really see their voyage. We don't see that in the movie. But we do see Captain Bly later on in England. So I guess we can assume that they survived. He stands trial before a court for his actions. But they absolve him of his deeds. They make it a point to say that captains, they appoint captains from gentlemen because there will never be codes that cover every situation. And in this case, the appointment of Captain Bly was a failure. So how well did the movie show what happens to Captain Bly after the mutiny? Yeah, again, they they really fast forwarded through a lot of the details. And I get it for time's sake because they were compressing this whole long saga down into the movie format. So it makes sense. Being set adrift in that tiny launch there was a pretty harrowing experience for a lot of those guys. It really is one of the greater feats of navigational history just because of the situation they were dropped into. They weren't planning on it. Somehow, it seems like Bly's personality was more well-suited to that really tenuous situation where somebody just had to be in control no matter what, make all the shots, and nobody else really was in a position to talk back or to question his authority, given you know where they were. He Somehow, he seems to have shown more in that situation than he did as captain of the bounty. They had to travel those 3,600 miles to Bangor. That wasn't quite the initial plan, but it's what they wound up doing. They tried to put in at some smaller islands along the way, but there were native populations that were hostile to them. So they were able to snatch some food and run, basically, but they weren't going to get help that way. They weren't going to get to any kind of actual safety I think one of the crewmen was killed by natives as they tried to escape one of the islands there. So they wound up having to travel those. It's about 4,000 statute miles, like miles on land. So it's a little longer than we would think, even although 3,600 miles is difficult to conceive of. They were on starvation rations because they had no food, which is one ounce of bread and a quarter pint of water per day. Effectively nothing. So just the fact that they survived this whole thing is amazing. They did make it, though. They had to navigate through some uncharted territory to get there because where the bounty dropped them off and then making it over to the nearest European settlement, I guess. I think it was a Dutch settlement in Bangor where they knew they could find safety. They had to travel through some of those uncharted territories that the bounty was initially planning to travel through on their way back home. So since they had to go that way, Bly tried to salvage as much as he could. One of the crewmen, when they put them over the side of the bounty, had given him log books and given him pen and paper. So as they're in this tiny open boat with no room 
to even like breathe or turn around. Captain Bly's taking charts, taking logs. He's like documenting ev- everything they find and see on this 3,600 mile journey, which is also strange to think of. They did make it eventually. I think it was about 48 days it took them to go from being put over the side to making it to this Dutch settlement. And somehow or other, all of the men survived, except for that one who was killed by natives on on an island. Wow. With five days of water, and it ended up being 48 days, and they survived. I mean, granted, you know, I'm sure water was also a top priority on some of those islands as well. Yeah, they, they were able to supplement the supply a little bit, but not to any degree that was it it just was enough to barely keep them alive and still be able to navigate i mean not just barely alive but barely alive and navigating <laughs> thousands of miles of water yeah i i think one of the crewmen who was stuck on the bounty but still was on the side of captain Bly managed to get them a compass too i i believe that was one of the items that they got in the launch so Without some of those items, yeah, they probably wouldn't have been able to navigate like they did. Well, it's interesting that you talk about how little water they had because, you know, thinking of the way the movie portrays it, even before leaving the bounty, there was this ration on the water and some of the men seemed like they were almost dying on the bounty because they weren't allowed water. Um, and granted, you you mentioned that wasn't necessarily the case, but it's interesting that they show that because... Based on what happens after that, if they were down to that little amount of water per day on top of even before leaving the bounty, having almost dying there, and then, you know, that would surely put them over the edge. I don't know. It's just, it's tough to to fathom. That's a good point. I'd Same for me. It, it is impossible to think about because now we, we don't really have to even think twice about how much water you want to drink. <laughs> Well, that's Captain Bly's side. But then in the movie, after the mutiny, we see the men on the bounty take her back to Tahiti. That's the first place they go. They go there to get more supplies. But then through some dialogue, we find out they can't really stay there because they're afraid that if Captain Bly does manage to survive, that's the first place that he's going to go is to go back to Tahiti and look for these men. The Tahitian king's daughter that Lieutenant Christian didn't really talk about this earlier, but earlier Lieutenant Christian kind of fell for her earlier in the movie. She tells him that since their last visit, there's been a war, there's a new chief. And then she asks if some of the Tahitian men and women can go with them on the bounty. And on the bounty side, Lieutenant Christian now has a smaller crew because some of the men went with Captain Bly. So that's kind of how the movie sets up that there's going to be some Tahitians leaving on the bounty when they actually leave there. And when they do that, they end up finding an island called Pitcairn. And this is an, was an interesting little scene in the movie when Lieutenant Christian, he sees the land, and then he goes to look at his maps, and he realizes that this island is charted wrong. The official maps for the British Navy that they have show this island being about 175 miles away from where it actually is, meaning it would be a great place to hide out because everybody thinks it's in a completely different location. And once they actually get to this island, they find out that the island is uninhabited, which makes it even better. So is that the path that 
they ended up actually taking the movie shows going from Tahiti, picking up some natives, and then managing to find this uninhabited and incorrectly charted island named Pitcairn? Yeah, the broad strokes, that is about how it played out. There are some, you know, intervening details that are slightly different that explain some of the details of how people ended up where they did. And I'll try to fill those in somewhat concisely. So the main goal, they did wind up back in Tahiti. They tried to settle on a different island that was about, I don't know, a couple hundred miles south of Tahiti. That was their first attempt. That didn't work out partially because they didn't have many supplies there. There were some natives on that island already who also didn't want guys setting up shop. So they got in some skirmishes. They wound up, you know, fighting some battles with these natives on, I think the island was called Tubuai. They set up a little fort there, if I remember right. And then they went back to Tahiti with part of the crew staying on this other island. They picked up Tahitians from the island there. Some men, I think, who wanted to help them build on this other island, but they also picked up all the women who had been their wives previously. They brought some of them back to this other island, and they tried to set up a colony there effectively, but it still didn't work. So then they all got back on the bounty and went back to Tahiti. And I guess that's kind of the movie cuts out that middle part. They tried to make some other attempts that just fell through. They wind up back in Tahiti, and it's pretty clear at that point that Fletcher Christian doesn't want to stay there. But others of the crew do want to stay there. It it seems like Christian's authority weakened pretty fast after the mutiny. He was able to hold it together, but this failed attempt on the other island probably got people at odds. And two camps developed out of those who had taken part in the mutiny. Once they made it back to Tahiti, Fletcher Christian and the people who wanted to leave Tahiti were on board the bounty at nighttime. They were at anchor somewhere in the harbor there. And the rest of the men were on the island. He let them go onto the island with the understanding that they could stay there. But he had no plans to stick around. At nighttime, a bunch of the Tahitians were on board the bounty. Some of them, you know, wanted to be there. Others of them were there just taking part in a feast or something. And Fletcher Christian cut the anchor and just left. So he basically absconded from the island with a handful of Tahitians who didn't want to leave. And he took them as captives almost. So uh, that's a little bit of a window into how he operated that they didn't necessarily show in the movie. 16 out of the original 25 mutineers wound up staying on Tahiti. So nine of them, including Fletcher Christian, left. And then that's where Pitt Cairn comes into the story. And as you relate it, that, that is pretty accurate. I, How did you say the movie depicts it? They see land, and so he goes to the map to see what it is. And he notices that at that point, the island is 175 miles from where it actually is because they can actually see the island. And so that's when he realizes there's this mismatch. That's right. I think the way it played out in reality is maybe slightly flipped from that, but I guess it doesn't make any effective difference because the island was mischarted about 200 miles from where it actually was. And the way that the charts had worked, 
I think only one expedition had drawn the original chart that put Pitcairn in that position, then every subsequent chart in all of Europe that any navigator would have had was based on that original. So literally every chart in existence, it was not where it should have been. Fletcher Christian saw that there was this tiny island out of the way on his version of the chart. They went to sail towards Pitcairn because they thought it might be an option for a place to hide out. Uh, I think they knew by this point that there was a high likelihood Bly had survived and that there might be, you know, people from the Navy come looking for the people who had led the mutiny. So they wanted to get as far off the scene as they could. Pitcairn was pretty far off. But then when they got to where Fletcher Christian thought it was going to be, there was nothing there. He's a seasoned navigator, though, so he realized that the most likely mistake on charting an island like that was that they had just gotten the longitude wrong. Latitude is a whole lot easier to calculate when you're drawing a chart like that. So he just sailed east 200 miles along the same line of latitude. And once they got 200 miles to the east on that same line, they ran straight into the island. So that confirmed that it was wrong on all the charts and they wound up staying there because they assumed nobody else would find that for quite a long time. You mentioned that they thought that perhaps Captain Bly might have survived. Was there any sort of indicator that might have given them that idea? I don't think there's any indicator that they would have had themselves. I don't think that they'd had any contact with the outside world still by this point. Probably just trying to play it as safe as they could, I guess. I mean, they knew that Captain Bly was a very skilled navigator. And they, when they put the launch over the side, they weren't too far away from some of those smaller islands. So it's thought that maybe they, like we said earlier, they, they didn't want to kill Bly and the other crew members outright. They set them adrift in the ocean but they knew, eh, we're kind of close to land. They might just make it there. And somehow or other, they'll find their way back, even if it takes a long time. Okay, yeah. And I imagine there's going to be a fair amount of just the paranoia of knowing that you've done something like mutiny and always looking over your shoulder that is going to come with that. Yeah, I, that's probably a big part of it, too. And the movie does portray that element of it pretty good. Speaking of the movie, at the very end, we see Lieutenant Christian... He's thinking about going back to England. He suggests that if Captain Bly survived, the only way that he's going to be charged for his actions is if there's another side to the argument. Right now, if Captain Bly is the only one there, then it's only going to be his side of the argument. And of course, that's going to be uh, pretty one-sided. And it makes sense the way that the movie portrays that. But then the crew doesn't want to leave Pitcairn. They've found this paradise island so one night, they go out and burn the bounty while it's anchored in the bay. Lieutenant Christian tries to stop the fire, but he's burned badly. He ends up dying on the beach just as the timing of this in the movie, of course, I'm assuming is going to be Hollywood again. He dies on the beach just as the ship sinks to her final resting place as well. But what do we know about how the movie's version of the story lines up with the way that the real story ended for the bounty and her crew? 
this one's probably going to be a long answer because, you know, as as we've gotten up to this point where we saw the mutiny play out, it, we're almost to like three different strands of the story now. So it, it takes a little bit to wrap it up. There's one random tidbit, as you mentioned, that Hollywood scene ending where he dies on the beach and the ship sinks in the background. I was reading a little bit after I watched the film again, and I I never realized, but they built a full replica of the Bounty ship for the movie. I think MGM funded the whole thing, and they built it according to the original plans that were still somewhere in England. It was scaled down a little bit to make it work for the camera crews and filming and everything. But I read that the original plan was they were going to burn the actual replica for that final scene, which I guess that would have looked pretty cool. It would have been more accurate. But apparently over the course of filming the movie, Marlon Brando had grown pretty attached to the boat, to the ship. So he stepped in and said, you can't burn this thing. Like, it's way too important. And they wound up burning a, a model or something, I think it looks like, from that end scene. So uh, that was pretty interesting to me. I, Brando, like, tried to buy the replica later on, but he didn't have enough money to buy it by that point in his life oh <laughs> don't don't burn this I, I want it but i can't buy it because i don't have enough money for it <laughs> yeah uh, there's a whole weird like saga of that ship replica that they built for the movie but uh, that's totally unrelated that's interesting that you know he's he's playing the character of christian that obviously doesn't want the ship burned either so it's kind of a, a little bit of a parallels there yeah i didn't think of that that's a good point Okay, so I guess we'll try to tie up the three strands. We said that Bly, they they did eventually make it in that boat to the Dutch settlement. So I didn't really wrap up his strand too much. He made it back to England and he underwent the court martial, like you said. But after he was acquitted, and I don't know if the Admiralty had any you know ill will toward him. They do have that line in the movie where they said they appointed captains who were able to make decisions and not just follow the book. Uh, you read that one. I, I don't know for sure if they had any ill will toward him. There probably was some, but probably I would assume through the influence of Joseph Banks, who funded the whole initial expedition. After he's acquitted, Bly gets entrusted with doing a second expedition back to Tahiti to do the whole thing over again, basically, since the first one had failed. So he's acquitted and then he gets a second expedition ready and he goes right back to Tahiti. After that all happens, he'd made it back to England and the Admiralty was aware that there had been a mutiny. So they assembled the security force, you know, to go find the people who'd carried out the mutiny and bring them back to face justice. This expedition went back to Tahiti. They searched some other places on the way out there, but they didn't find any crew until they got to Tahiti. On the island there, they arrested everybody who was left from the mutiny. So I think it would have been all 16 of those men. And that ship, they never did find Pitcairn. So I, I guess going to that mischarted island did work out pretty well for Fletcher Christian and those other guys because the Navy expedition never found them. There's some more poetic justice, I guess. On the way back to England, though, this Navy expedition who had the 
the mutineers basically in a cage. They had them imprisoned in the front of the ship. It wrecked on the Great Barrier Reef coming north around Australia. So I want to say like five or six of the prisoners died by drowning because they didn't open the cage fast enough. The captain on that ship was pretty harsh, which I guess is to be expected when you think everybody took part in the mutiny. The problem is, like we said, not everybody was willingly part of the mutiny. Some of the guys were held there against their will. So there was poetic justice for some. There was maybe a miscarriage of justice for others. They did eventually make it back to England with 10 of these prisoners, and they all underwent a court-martial, the same that uh, Bly and the others did. I think four of them were fully acquitted because there was enough testimony to prove they didn't want to be part of it. Two of them were found guilty, but because they had some influential family connections, they received the king's royal pardon. So technically they were guilty. They didn't get hung, though. There were four others who didn't have those connections, I guess you could say, and they wound up sentenced to death by hanging, which was the punishment for mutiny. So they had some ships in Portsmouth Harbor there with all the admirals who came in to be part of the court-martial, and four men who took part in the mutiny were eventually hung from the yard arms of a ship there in Portsmouth Harbor as punishment, but as a symbol for all, all the people in the Navy to see, like, this is what happens if you mutiny against the Navy. I would assume that would be one of the big reasons why the Navy puts such effort forth to finding mutineers like that is to send a message. Yeah, that that was definitely the the whole goal of that for them. Then I guess that leaves the third strand, which is Fletcher Christian, who, you know, was maybe the main one who instigated the mutiny. Him and the eight other sailors who made it out to Pitcairn, nobody knew what happened to them for a long time. The Navy expedition never found them, and nobody else did for 18 years until the first outside European ship finally stumbled upon Pitcairn Island again. And by the time they made it there 18 years later, there was only one man from the original mutiny left alive. I don't know the exact number, but by that point, he'd been living on the island for so long. And a lot of the others who had gone there, like Fletcher Christian even, they, they came there with women from Tahiti. A lot of them had children with these women on the island. There was a colony of probably 30 or 40 people living on Pitcairn Island by the time, I think it was an American ship that stumbled on the island. So that's got to be a weird thing to see when you're expecting an uninhabited barren island in the middle of nowhere. They reported, you know, seeing smoke coming out from the trees and then they get there and there's this weird colony of English speaking people, but they look like they're Tahitians. The story, according to this one guy who was left alive, is that Fletcher Christian was pretty sullen once they got to the island. So in some respects, I think the movie tries to portray that leading up to the mutiny and then the whole aftermath of the mutiny, it seems like maybe he was regretting what happened a little bit or wondering how it could have gone differently. A lot of the details they don't have, but once these nine men and their entourage, I don't know what to call it, all the people that they had taken to the island 
once they made it there, things devolved pretty quickly. Maybe they were okay at first, but over a period of a, a couple of years, the men who they'd taken there unwillingly felt, and probably rightly so, they felt like the English crewmen were just using them like slave labor because they were. They also felt like they had just stealing the Tahitian women to use as wives and nothing else, which is also... Because they did. <laughs> exactly. So uh, some of the things that played out, I, I think, were foreseeable. There came to be a lot of conflicts between the English sailors, but also between the Tahitian men. Uh, it seems, from what we can tell, Fletcher Christian just was murdered by one of the Tahitian men one day. They don't know for sure. But that's the story that this lone survivor told. Then there were further conflicts where maybe there were bigger battles, I guess, even though it's just a handful of men on either side. But eventually it got pared down to where there's just one man remaining on this tiny island. So it's a little bit of a strange dynamic to how that all played out. Did they actually burn the ship then? They did. They did. And that was another thing that this lone survivor said. It seems like. That may have been the plan early on. Pitcairn Island's kind of a rocky, small island, so there wasn't a good harbor to keep the ship safe in. From his account, they got there, and pretty quickly after they got to the island, they unloaded all the stores from the ship. They left it sit at anchor there for a little bit, but they didn't have any concrete plans to ever leave again. So... He gave different stories at different times, depending on who he was talking to, whether they all agreed to burn the ship, whether it was accidental. He did tell the version of the story that two men snuck out there at nighttime and they burned it and everybody else was surprised. So I, it's not entirely clear how the ship burned, just that it did. And they, they did actually find remnants of the ship there off the island in the 60s, the 50s or the 60s, and they've pulled up, you know, there were a couple small cannons on board the ship. It wasn't a big ship by any means, but they have found artifacts from it there off the coast of the island. So it sounds like, to kind of wrap that side of it up, that the ship did burn for one reason or another, but it sounds like the most inaccurate part of the way the movie portrays it is how Lieutenant Christian died trying to stop the ship from being burned. It sounds like there was more of a dynamic there with the others on the island, or the, the Tahitians in particular, that the movie, of course, just never even touches or never even gets into. Yeah, I, like we've been saying, it, it's all a bit too complex for the movie to fit all of those different strands in and to have a narrative that that's easy to follow. So I get why they didn't get into it. I mean, maybe some of it is the... The 60s Hollywood perspective on some of these stories, too, and, you know, cutting out certain perspectives from native Tahitians or stuff like that. They, they didn't try to cast as wide of an angle on the different interests involved in, in a story like this. I think some of the way that the story comes down, though, and maybe this is the last thing I'll say without trying to make it too complicated. It's a weird evolution of the story because of how the court martials played out. And the way that the mutiny played out, you get Bly's side of the story back in England to where he didn't really do anything wrong. It was just these horrible sailors who didn't want to listen to his authority. And they just wanted to go back to Tahiti because all the women seduced them and they wanted the easy life. That's kind of how he portrays it. 
But once these captives who had, or once the mutineers who had stayed on Tahiti, they were then captured by the Navy and brought back. Their side of the story is the side where Bly is the bad guy. He's like punishing everybody so far above what the Navy allows for. He's a tyrant and they were just trying to save themselves from his tyranny, right? The way that that story all emerged was because one of the mutineers who had the family connections, he was the one who got acquitted with the royal pardon. His brother was a lawyer in England, and he had more connections with politicians and other wealthy people. So he did this whole years-long campaign in the press writing books to like defend his brother and that's really where it emerges that Fletcher Christian is the hero of the story and William Bly is the villain. Some of the elements in that version are true. A lot of the underlying facts are true, but it's more in the colors of how things are portrayed and the things that are left out of the story where you get a one-sided portrayal in one way or the other. Well, I'm curious, I mean, because yeah, you're going to have multiple sides to the story, but we know how it ended for some of those mutineers who were hung to set an example for others. Was there anything that the Navy found Captain Bly did that they wanted to almost set an example for other captains to not be so torturous of their crew members? That's something I've been curious about, too, and I really haven't seen too much that the Navy at least officially indicated that they wish would have been done differently. Maybe that's because they would kind of be admitting that they were at fault a little bit if they admitted that Captain Bly played a part in what happened, preserving just that chain of authority, I guess, a little bit. So they have to back up their captain. That might be part of it. Nothing springs to mind, honestly, where they said that he did anything wrong in any way. It's more so the events later in his life that continue to keep occurring that I really briefly alluded to at the beginning, that those, I think, have solidified that his personality was abrasive, that he was a hard man to get along with. He could have made better judgment calls that might have avoided some of these incidents that later blew up into a mutiny. He was on the second expedition back to Tahiti. Most everybody got along with him, but there was one sailor who ended the expedition like vowing to hate Captain Bly for the rest of his life. But I didn't find much detail about what was beneath that whole animosity there. He was involved in another mutiny later on, I think, that wasn't necessarily his fault. It was more of a political labor dispute almost between a lot of crewmen at a various port. And but he was still a captain on a ship, so he got swept up in this whole bigger thing. But technically, he was still involved in another mutiny. Well, technically, this one wasn't his fault either, right? You hear his account. (laughs) Right, exactly. Well, then the final straw in his whole life saga, I guess, is he he did get selected to go be the governor of New South Wales, which was a colony in Australia, I think because he still had some political connections even later in his life. This was like 20 years after the bounty thing. He gets down there and he's there for a while, but that whole 
endeavor on his part ended poorly. The colonists in New South Wales and then a whole contingent of soldiers in the colony wound up just arresting him and saying, you're not going to be the governor anymore. He basically had it's not a mutiny, I guess, because it happened on land and he was a governor. But it seems like some of the same tensions were beneath the, the whole way that that scenario played out. So long story short, I don't know that the Navy ever admitted too much when it comes to the bounty mutiny, but there's enough there in Bly's later life that maybe they should have. It might have avoided further incidents down the road. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of how much we believe the story itself. There, We have multiple versions of the story from Captain Bly as well as the crew, but it sounds like looking back on it through a historical lens a lot of which sides we believe have come from Bly's later expeditions and him being the common denominator with a lot of these things. Yeah, I think that was a big factor in it. The only other thing that springs to mind that I've read is um, the timing of how the court martials played out. We said that Bly went on that second expedition back to Tahiti after he got acquitted. While he was gone for a period of years, that's when the ship who had arrested the mutineers came back to England and they all underwent their trial. So there is that element of all the men who were found guilty of the mutiny. He wasn't even around to give his side of the story, but there was just not that overlap where both sides could give their part and a supposedly impartial third party could try to get to the bottom of it at the same time. It wound up being just their competing narratives got swept up in the popular press of the day almost. And, and that kind of took things and, and ran with it to a large degree. Thank you so much for coming on to chat about Mutiny on the Bounty. I know you've got a ton more history on your podcast. Can you share a little bit of information about your show and where someone listening can find it? Yeah, definitely. And thank you for having me on. I enjoyed talking about all this bounty stuff. It, it's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, so the podcast that I put together, it's called the Maritime History Podcast. It's a descriptive name. It's not very original or exciting, I guess. But anything maritime history is what I try to cover. So that's casting the net rather broadly. My website is just maritimehistorypodcast.com. You can just search for the name of the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever. It's available pretty much on all the podcast catchers that are out there. We're about 40 episodes deep right now, and I'm a sucker for the details and the, the deep facts of history, so we've really been stuck in ancient history only. Right now, we are talking about ancient Greece, so we just covered the Battle of Salamis and the Triremes, all that kind of interesting battle stuff. But we've also talked about ancient Egypt and some of the icons and the various boats that have been found by the pyramids, stuff like that. And we've also talked about the Phoenicians. So a lot of Mediterranean history so far. Great. I'll make sure to add a link to your podcast in the show notes for this episode as well. Thanks so much for your time, Brandon. Yeah, thank you. I had a good time. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Brandon Hubner for his time and expertise in helping us separate fact from fiction in the movie Mutiny on the Bounty. 
If you want to learn even more about history on the high seas, go check out Brandon's great podcast called the Maritime History Podcast. And of course, if you're driving or unable to get there right now, then I'll make sure to add a link to Brandon's podcast in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Captain Bly was not really the captain of the bounty. Number two, not all of the mutineers left Tahiti for Pitcairn. Number three, Lieutenant Christian was killed after trying to save the bounty from burning. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. Captain Bly wasn't really the captain of the bounty. That is true. As Brandon explained, even though Bly was in charge of the bounty, he hadn't officially been given the rank of captain in the Navy by the time the bounty set sail. But he did hold the duties of the captain, so even though he didn't have the rank, he was still in charge. Number two. Not all of the mutineers left Tahiti for Pitcairn. That is also true. Brandon explained that some of the mutineers stayed on Tahiti. That means only a few of them went to Pitcairn with Lieutenant Christian. It also means those who were left on Tahiti were arrested once the Navy came to the island and they were the ones who were taken back to England, put on trial, and held accountable for their part in the mutiny. That means the lie is number three. Lieutenant Christian was killed after trying to save the bounty from burning. As Brandon told us, we really only know what happened to the mutineers on Pitcairn from the one surviving crew member that made it until ships found the island again many, many years later. He did say the ship, the bounty, was burned, although he told multiple versions of the story at different times, so it's hard to know which to believe. As for Lieutenant Christian, it would seem some of the Tahitians who went with the bounty crew to Pitcairn grew unhappy to the point of killing Christian one day. That just about wraps up our time together. Before we go, the last thing that I would like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that's not something that most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. If there's one thing that's surprising to most people who are new to podcasting or who have never created a podcast before, it's just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out a little bit more about how much time and money goes into creating podcasts like mine, maybe you'll start to appreciate all those podcasts you listen to for free just a little bit more. But that said, today's episode took a total of 19 hours to create and cost $29.27 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time and cost for this one episode. It does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about, nor does it include any of my ongoing costs. For example, the monthly podcast and website hosting costs. Hosting the podcast is a separate cost from hosting the website and the domain name and all the software and all the hardware and everything that it takes to actually record a podcast. Those are separate from the costs for this one single episode. Now, if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. 
And as a bonus, you'll get access to hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. Right now, there are 45 minisodes over there covering a different fictional movie each time and the way that they use real history or events to make them seem more realistic. For example, in the last minisode, we learned about some of the real-life inspiration and cinematic history of the creatures that we saw in Godzilla, King of the Monsters. There are hours and hours of bonus content available immediately and exclusive to Based on a True Story supporters over on the producer's feed. And there's plenty more planned and in the works, and it's all just a way of saying thank you for helping me keep the lights on here at Based on a True Story. Once again, you can find out how to support the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to our story today, hop on to the Base on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.